Good evening, everyone. <laughs> um, on behalf of the Pratt Library, I want to welcome everyone for coming out tonight. Um, I think this is going to be a very interesting lecture. I've had an opportunity to read Now the Drum of War by our honored guest, and it is really a fascinating, fascinating book. Uh, before I introduce him to you, let me just mention um, on behalf of the library that we have a sign-up sheet. If you fill out your information on the sign-up sheet, you'll receive a copy of our compass, which will clue you into uh, appearances by other writers and various events that are taking place here at the Pratt. Um, I thought that it might be interesting to kind of get us in the mood for tonight's topic to read just a short verse from Whitman. I saw askant the armies, and I saw as in noiseless dreams hundreds of battle flags borne through the smoke of the battles and pierced with missiles. I saw them and carried hither and yon through the smoke and torn and bloody, and at last but a few shreds left on the staffs, and all in silence. And the staffs all splintered and broken, I saw battle corpses, myriads of them, and the white skeletons of young men. I saw them. I saw the debris and debris of all the dead soldiers of the war, but I saw they were not as was thought. They themselves were fully at rest. They suffered not. The living remained and suffered. The mother suffered, and the wife and the child and the musing comrades suffered, and the armies that remained suffered. Now, reading this made me think of those great poets writing about their experiences in the First World War, uh, Wilfred Owen and uh, Siegfried Sassoon and um, Alan Seeger and some of the others. Because there's one important difference here, and that is that all of those poets actually served in the ranks, so they knew firsthand the experience of war. Whitman, on the other hand, as, as I'm sure everyone knows, didn't actually serve during the Civil War except as a sort of one-man Red Cross. Um, I think one of the fascinating things about this book is that Robert Roper addresses the question of how it was that Whitman was able to describe so vividly the wartime experience during the Civil War, relying in large part on his relationship with his brother George, who served in the 51st New York. And I think one of the great things about this book is that uh, Mr. Roper is able to give us such a three-dimensional portrait of, of Whitman, the man, and the human being. Robert Roper has won awards for both fiction and nonfiction. His most recent book, which was Fatal Mountaineer, won the 2002 Boardman Tasker Prize given by the Royal Geographical Society, quite an honor. Works of fiction include Royal County on Spider Creek, Mexico Days, The Trespassers, and Cuervo Tales, which was a New York Times notable book. His journalism has appeared in the New York Times, in the LA Times, and in National Geographic, and he teaches at the Johns Hopkins University. Please join me in welcoming Robert Roper. Thank you. Um, uh, welcome, everybody. Um, I want to say a few words about how I came to uh, write this book. Um, uh, I'm not a historian. Uh, now I've 
committed the crime of writing a book with many, many footnotes, so I'm on my way to being a historian. But um, I had a uh, fairly typical experience of Walt Whitman, I think, for somebody of my generation. Uh, we read some of his poetry in high school, Oh, Captain, My Captain, probably one of his worst poems. Uh, <clears throat> then when I uh, went to college, I actually stumbled into a seminar that uh, was, was talking about Whitman in some depth, and we read a lot of, a lot of Whitman's poetry. But we read a lot of the poems of the sort of uh, oh, Ohio, oh, Indiana school, uh, sort of nationalistic, drum-beating kind of, kind of poems. And um, as an arrogant uh, college student, I, I, I just didn't really know what all the noise was about. I wasn't real impressed with this guy. And um, uh, one of the problems with his poetry was that it was actually um, comprehensible. You could read it, and you could know what he was talking about. And as a college student who had been uh, forced to read a lot of T.S. Eliot and more difficult poets, I I thought, therefore, he must be of the second rank. Um, I figured out many years later that we had been reading his poetry straight and strictly out of uh, the 1892 deathbed edition of Leaves of Grass. Maybe most of you know that Whitman was that rare poet who appeared to write the same book over and over again. He published, if you, there are different ways of counting this, but he published roughly six editions of Leaves of Grass over the course of his lifetime, uh, adding poems to it, subtracting poems. Um, and the deathbed edition, the one he, that was published in 1892, the year he died, is very well named because it's really the deadliest. Um, he had, by that point, been spending almost 40 years bowdlerizing his own poetry. Um, he had, in his earlier editions of Leaves of Grass, written a lot of truly compelling, captivating, highly sexualized poetry. Um, and as he became an older man and was spoken of as the good, great poet, he was sort of a father figure or grandfather figure to the country. He wanted to be that, that figure. He thought some of that stuff was a little bit hot. So he started breaking up his clusters of love lyrics. And he would, some of them, some of the great ones, he would just throw out. Uh, Other ones he would stick here and there in a vastly expanded uh, leaves of grass with more of that nationalistic poetry kind of buffering the hot stuff. So my encounter with with him was was muffled. Um, And I think it, it was very typical uh, as I say, of my, of my generation. Now, uh, in the course of working on this book, I ended up reading Whitman all over again, and I started by reading the first edition of it, the 1855 edition, um, which is a pretty slim book, and it's it's extraordinary. It's utterly extraordinary. Um, uh, this It's a new voice, not only in American poetry, but in world poetry. When you read this little book, you see why Whitman is spoken of as the most influential 
American poet, perhaps the most influential world poet of the last 200 years. Um, it's it's just just amazing and very powerful. And then for the then he published uh, slightly expanded Leaves of Grass in 1856, which is also very very good, hardly altered. But the great one is the 1860 edition. Um, it's uh, I, I think it's it, it's it's certainly worth an investment if you're curious about reading uh, Whitman and New, or go buy a copy of that 1855 edition. Uh, Penguin puts 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 out a nice paperback, uh, costs about a dollar. Um, it's it's a great investment. So anyway, I had. Uh, I had some curiosity about this guy, um, and I was, as I say, I was kind of frustrated by my first encounters with his poetry. Um, then, sometime in the, I guess in the in the 1990s, I was living in uh, Berkeley, California. Uh, a friend sent me a um, a postcard with a picture of Whitman. Um, I think. Um, Uh, if any of you have seen uh, a lot of 19th century daguerreotypes, um, you'll know that this is kind of this is an anomalous one. Um, most of, people had to sit really still for daguerreotypes. Sometimes they had to sit still for a minute or a minute and a half. And um, if you see f family shots in particular, the only thing that looks real and alive is the dog. Uh, the people are utterly frozen. And, uh, uh, of course, they're often dressed in very restrict, restrictive clothing. But you know, this pi picture of Walt was, was very different. Uh, he's just, I don't know, maybe he had to keep that expression on his face for a minute. But it, it sort of works. He's really looking out there at you. I felt, um, I felt that there, it was almost unique in 19th century, early daguerreotype. Imagery. Uh, you see, he's uh, he's wearing. Now he's a poet. This is this is taken 1854, just before he published Leaves of Grass. He was very a very ambitious poet. There was no doubt in his mind that he was going to be a great poet, and he was utterly serious about what he was up to. So everything in this image is very carefully thought out. Um, unlike every other great American writer up to that point, Longfellow, Emerson, um, Cooper. He poses with an open collar. Um, this was groundbreaking at the time. Perhaps it seems silly now, but he's dressed as a workman. Uh, anybody who saw this photo in 1854 would know, well, well, this guy probably, you know, he digs ditches. Maybe he's a carpenter. Maybe he's a mechanic. He's not an educated man. He is not a poet. Um, but this was the image that he had put together. And when the first edition of Leaves of Grass came out the next year, it had, a, it had a, uh, an engraving that was based upon a, a photo that was very, very similar to this. Um, and he's standing kind of nonchalantly with his torso twisted and a hand in his pocket, which was... People were just fainting over that because he, the image indicated that he had a full body. It wasn't just a head. Emerson, uh, Emerson was just a head. 
Longfellow was just a chest and a head, but Whitman wanted to draw attention to his body. He had a body, and then if you read the poetry, you saw that not only did he have a body, but he had a full set of sexual organs, and he had a full set of feelings, and he was romantic, and he was ardent. Um, so, um, so this little postcard got me into a lot of trouble. Um, I pinned it up on the wall of my my cottage, and uh, you know I'd look at it now and again, and uh, I, as I say, you know it fascinated me in a kind of a small way. And then um, I was reading something, and I I discovered that um, that Whitman had been a a nurse in the in the Civil War. Um, <clears throat> He's very careful uh, not to claim to have been a nurse. He said he was just a consoler, a visitor to the to the to the soldiers. Um, but in fact, um, he was an, a nurse. He uh, assisted at amputations. He attended many um, many operations. Uh, carried bedpans. He changed dressings. He sat with dying soldiers again and again and again, hundreds of them. Uh, he, uh, he, acted, he acted utterly as a nurse. And in fact, he trained himself before he went to the Civil War hospitals. He visited many hospitals in New York. He was, he was from Brooklyn, and he was well known at New York's uh, principal hospital because he was a very smart, helpful guy who could watch a procedure and then could do it himself. Um, he was, uh, so he had, in his way, trained himself to be a nurse. And so when he went to the hospitals during the Civil War, he was very useful. Um, some of the doctors became really fond of him uh, and loved to see him on, on, on the wards. In fact, almost universally he was uh, treasured as a visitor and a worker in the hospitals. There were a couple of nurses who didn't like him. Um, in a small way, he, he stood for a spirit of fun. Uh, he wasn't quite a Falstaff figure, uh, but uh, if a soldier asked him, if, Walt, could you get me some brandy? Walt could get him some brandy. Uh, Walt uh, liked to tell jokes. Um, most of the visitors to the Civil War hospitals brought literature with with them and was almost exclusively Bible tracts. Walt never bought, brought Bible tracts to the soldiers. He brought them the equivalent of the funny papers uh, and racy novels. Whatever they wanted to read, uh, he would bring them. So a few nurses didn't quite like like him, but almost universally the soldiers were were crazy about him. They, re they really liked him. They really liked him. So, um, and then I, I started reading about the nature of his service. Now, um, a, a genre of book um, developed during the Civil War, nursing memoirs. Um, there, are, there are a lot of them, and mostly written by women. Um, there are two great ones. Uh, Louisa May Alcott wrote wrote a small book called Hospital Sketches that's really priceless. It's a terrific book. Um, and then Walt wrote his Memoranda During the War. Uh, came out in the 1870s. Um, now, Louisa May Alcott, this was a few years before Little Women. You can see the brilliant writer that she's going to be in this small book. Uh, but her book uh, is based on 
three weeks of service as a nurse. Um, three weeks, and she's come to a hospital infection, probably typhoid fever, and they treated her with uh, mercury-based compounds. She's uh, lucky that she escaped with her life. Um, Walt's book is based on roughly eight years of service. Uh, he served during most of the war, and then he continued to live in Washington and to nurse and visit the soldiers in the Washington area hospitals after the war. Um, and um, I found to my astonishment, after I collated all the sources I could, trying to dis dis discover, well, okay, really, ha I know he was there for years, but how much work did he really do? Um, he, he worked in the hospitals on the average uh, 40 to 50 hours a week, um, five to six days a week. Um, this is year in and year out. He uh, he had a he had a little job to support himself, a sinecure. He was a clerk, a uh, copyist in a government office, and he was also working hard as a journalist uh, all during the war. But his main labor was visiting these hospitals, working in these hospitals, um, and uh, the size of that just kind of um, bowled me over. Now, while while I was working on this book. Um, the Iraq War is going on. I would occasionally read um, uh, articles in the paper. Senator so and so proudly visited Walter Reed for you know an hour and a half yesterday, and you know, um, and I, I honored them for for that. But this is a, a different kind of visiting. This is this is a this is a great empathic gesture in our history. What this guy did um, now. As I said, he was a very smart, self-promoting, ambitious writer. Um, he came to poetry early, but he had a uh, he had a long career before he published the first edition of Leaves of Grass as a journalist. He had worked in, on and edited many newspapers in in Brooklyn and New York, so he was a real smart self-promoter. And um, as a professional writer myself, I know that. Writers are these very impure beings. They're always looking for a book, a, a book idea, a book contract. Um, you get an idea to be, a, you know, to be a volunteer in a hospice, to do something really remarkable looking, but secretly you're writing a book about it. And uh, um, so Whitman was writing a book, too. He was looking for subjects for poetry, and he did write a, a great hospital memoir, but but the work was really larger than anything he did. It was it was really uh, of, 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 a, of a very great dimension. Um, so, so I was intrigued when I when I actually put together how hard he had worked, um, and then I discovered, lo and behold, he came from this very large Brooklyn family. Not quite a slum family, but a very, very impoverished family. They had the Whitmans had come to had had come to North America in the 17th century, and they had become landowners. They had been gentry. They had done quite well. Um, but by the time of Whitman's father's maturity, they'd lost just about everything, and they. They came from Long Island, where they had been landowners, into the little bustling new city of Brooklyn, uh, looking for the main chance. Uh, Walter Whitman Sr. 
Um, Walt's father was a carpenter, and he figured the population's growing there in Brooklyn. I'll go in and I'll become a spec builder. I'll build houses, and that's exactly what he did. He wasn't. He was a. He was a very good carpenter, but he was a very poor businessman. So the family just staggered along for 25 years. He would build houses. Then they would lose them. They'd have to move quickly to some other place. Uh, there are. There are many, many descriptions uh, in Walt's journals and in letters in the family of these very basic, basic domiciles uh, that they lived in, and they were always shadowed by bankruptcy. Um, anyway, it's a large family, and uh, Walter Whitman Sr., in, uh, in the bi- biographical literature that exists about Whitman and the Whitman family, Walt- Walter is considered a failure um, but I, I consider it actually quite a victory to have had eight children have, and to have brought them all into maturity alive uh, in, uh, in, that, in that, that era. I mean, there were cholera epidemics every summer in Brooklyn beginning in 1832 for the next 20 years. So all, all of the kids had enough to eat. Uh, they went to school, some kind of school. Walt went to school until t- he was 11. Um, and uh, they were quite a large family, too. Uh, they, Walt was a big guy. He was over six feet, um, usually over 200 pounds, almost a giant for the era. Um, and uh, so the, this failure uh, that Walter Whitman Sr. supposedly presided over, I, I don't quite see it that way. And, in fact, the family was um, very warmly entangled with, with itself. Uh, it was, uh, you know, large, I don't know if any of you come from large families, sometimes a r- relatively healthy large family generates kind of a critical mass, and and the sons and the daughters grow up, and the families that they found are not too far away, just because there's there's sort of a, a fun and a warmth and and, and a source of sustenance that, that, that doesn't go away. And the Whitman family was like that. It was troubled, it was troubled. Some of the sons were very troubled, um, but uh, there was uh, there was a lot of warmth um, in the family. And anyway, Walt had um, a number of younger brothers, and one of them, George Washington Whitman, who was almost ten years younger than Walt, um, was a soldier. He was a common soldier. Now, Walt. Uh, when, when the Civil War happened, Walt was, like many Americans, North and South, utterly heartbroken. Um, he, he had a lot of invested in the success of the American experiment, and the idea that American young men were now go- going to be slaughtering each other was, was terrible to him. Uh, the idea was, was terrible to him, terrible to him, and... Uh, and he sort of turned away from the war for the first year. He was so heartsick about it. But this younger brother, George, enlisted um, six days after the firing on Fort Sumter. He really, really wanted to get in, get into the action, he, and he wanted to go teach those, those naughty reb, Rebs a lesson. Um, he, uh, he was disgusted by, by them, and uh, in his small, non-ideological way, he was an abolitionist much more so, I would say, than Walt. So, um, so George went as a common soldier, and um, uh, I discovered that 
George wrote um, a lot of letters as a soldier, and they were they're great letters. They're they're not the letters of a poet, but they're they're the letters of a naturally gifted leader and an ardent soldier, a guy who was very curious about about soldiering and about military strategy. So. Uh, very early in the war, he started writing letters back to the family, letters that would nominally be addressed to Walt or to Louisa Van Velser Whitman, Mrs. Whitman, um, but that everybody in the family would read. And, um, you know, he'd write letters sort of on the order of, um, Mammy, we were in another bad dust-up a couple of days ago. I don't know what, what they're going to call it, but it happened by a little creek called Antietam. And then would follow five-page description, um, extremely precise, so precise that I could, uh, 150 years later, go and find exactly where his platoon had been when they had come under fire, when when they had done this maneuver or that maneuver. A very, very, very detailed and fluent description of the battle. Um, and after the battles that he was in. Um, he would often walk the battleground to try to understand the larger forces and the strategic decisions. Um, he was quite quite perceptive about uh, uh, larger questions of strategy, and um, he was, um, as I say, he was gifted for war. Uh, his superiors recognized that he had something, and they they quickly made him a sergeant. Then they made him a lieutenant. Uh, he uh, he was commanding. Um, a company after uh, only uh, about a half a year, and at the end of the war, he was a lieutenant colonel. And uh, but he was not somebody who was uh, seconded to the, the the chief of staff or or, or a, a paper pusher. He was always a leader of men in in battle, and uh, he fought in, by my reckoning, twenty one major battles countless, literally countless skirmishes and other other um, other encounters, uh, and he was often at the most heated, most desperate part of battle, so that at Antietam, he uh, he he led his company at Burnside's Bridge. If any of you are Civil War buffs, you'll, you'll, you'll know that this was a bridge that was defended by um, by Confederate forces uh, dug in on a hillside. They were firing down at a bridge, and uh, they had an absolute kill, kill zone command of that bridge. And regiment after regiment was sent stupidly to take this narrow little bridge. And uh, after several other regiments had failed, the 51st New York was was uh, commanded to take it, and they did take it. They did somehow extraordinarily take it, um, along with a Pennsylvania regiment. Um, and he was uh, in the very thick of the fighting at the wilderness. Um, they were um, an extremely active um, regiment. Uh, one of the things that interested me um, as I was reading up in the in the National Archives, the the um, 
the sources I could find about actual day-to-day -day maneuvering and um, and how 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 the regiment fared. Uh, the the city regiments were considered to be a bunch of pasty-faced clerks. Again, George Whitman came from. Uh, Brooklyn, the the real men were the the farmers and the woodsmen who came from the the old Northwest, uh, Ohio, places like that, and they kind of looked down on these fellows from the city. But um, the fellows from the city, probably from growing up in the city and encountering a lot of infections, were much more resistant to dysentery, to typhoid fever, to cholera, to uh, the other. Uh, epidemic infection. So uh, the 51st New York, um, in, in general, uh, soldiers in the Civil War had twice as much, twice as great a chance of dying of disease as from a bullet wound. But in the 51st New York, they mainly died from bullet wounds and not, not, from, uh, not from infections. And, uh, and they, they were extremely tough Regiment that took a lot of casualties and re-recruited, filled up, filled up again, and kept coming back. I think they're almost unique uh, in the uh, on the Union side in that they were sent to the West and they saw a lot of a lot of uh, combat out in the West at Vicksburg and uh, taking of Jackson, Mississippi, and other places. They were sent to the West because they were. Um, they were commanded by General Burnside, who was in disgrace uh, after First Fredericksburg. Um, but they were unique in that they were after they they were sent to the West. They were brought back to the Eastern Theater again because they were just so good, and they they knew how to fight and they knew how to survive. And so um, I thought that it was interesting that this this family had produced two very different styles of man um, who were so deeply involved in the war. Now, Walt was described by a close friend as a great, tender mother man. Um, nowadays, we would, you know, we, if we met him and got to know him, we might describe him, well, of course, we'd describe him as a poet, but we might say, well, he's a homosexual, uh, that being because his lovers were men. Um, um, I, I don't know if that had anything to do with his aversion to picking up the gun and going into battle himself, but he had he was much more drawn to serving in these hospitals and and nursing and caring. Um, and George, very very different sort of guy. Uh, they were very devoted to each other, and their family correspondence. Um, was was really voluminous. Now, during the Civil War, um, of course, there were no other ways of communicating. Uh, I mean, you could send your, conceivably, you could send your family a telegram, but um, people were writing letters like mad. Um, just in the North, there were roughly 180,000 letters sent uh, amongst um, families and soldiers each day. Think of that. <laughs> Think of that. Um, and uh, so the Whitmans were madly writing, um, but you know they were they were clearly of a different order of of intensity. Their their correspondence was. Uh, that I, I I found several days when the family would generate 
upwards of 10 letters. Um, so Walt is in Washington um, writing home to his mother. He's also writing to George. George is writing to Walt. He's writing to Mrs. Whitman. He's writing to another brother, Thomas Jefferson, who lived in, uh, lived in Brooklyn, had a family there, lived with Mrs. Whitman. Uh, the letters are being sent to Hannah, the daughter who lived in Vermont. She's writing back to George. She's writing back to Walt. It's, it's just it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, and everybody read everything, pretty much. Um, uh, and these letters are very, very frank. Um, the, the, the letters that Walt wrote to his mother um, uh, are straight on reportage about what he saw in, in these hospitals. Now, the hospitals in Washington um, uh, at the beginning of the war were, uh, were terrible. They were, they were foul charnel houses. Um, by the second and third year of the Civil War, the hospitals had gotten regularized. The old places had been had been closed down and new structures had been built. They were still pretty foul, but they were kind of organized. And there were clean sheets and there were systems. So, uh, but, but Walt saw really terrible, terrible things. And um, he suffered emotionally. Um, he, um, although a strong union man, um, he thought that the war was essentially a butchery, and um, he uh, he 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 talked talked to his mother about that, and he 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 would describe to her his uh, um, the the despair that came over him, um, and uh, talked to her frankly. And he would also talk to her about. Um, his attraction to to some of the soldiers. Um, he, uh, you know, he had a particular kind of romantic object. Uh, object's not the right world word, but um, he liked s- strong, young, athletic working men, um, and uh, and that's exactly what he found in these hospitals. Uh, they were, you know, many many. Um, sons of farmers, sons of mechanics. Uh, they were just just the kind of guys he liked, and uh, he knew how to talk to them. I mean, he had many brothers who were like that. He he was so he uh, he he would write to his mother about his fascination with nursing some of these guys, and uh, and unlettered, untutored Mrs. Whitman, um, who who actually has has been described until recently in, in the biographical literature as an illiterate, um, would, would respond to him with great sensitivity. Um, Walt, I understand. I think I understand the despair you feel. I also understand the fascination. Um, you speak of bathing that handsome soldier from Ohio, uh, the one who died later after the amputation. I understand why he's haunting your dreams. She was very, very astute. Now, for me, um, George was a great discovery in this book uh, because his, his letters are so fascinating. But the real discovery was Mrs. Whitman. Um, her letters have been collected there at the, um, at, at, uh, the Trent Library at Duke. Um, and as I say, she was. I, I, I read biographies of Whitman, and I, 
understood from these biographies that he had, had you know, the, the great poet had an illiterate mother. Right? You know, illiterate. But, but there they are, you know, scores and scores and scores and scores of letters, long letters. Um, her spelling's not so good, and there's kind of a, um, you know, a, um, an onrushing uh, stream of consciousness style that they have. But, but the letters are quite adroit. And she'll, she'll seemingly talk about anything that's impinging on her consciousness. She'll write, write to her sons who, uh, who, who are very hungry for news about how things are going back there in, in Brooklyn. They, they want to hear you know, that she's still cooking pot, baking pies and you know, everybody's feeling okay and there was a good celebration on July 4th. She writes letters that are full of that kind of um, reassuring reportage, but there also she'll talk about the privy in the backyard is stinking again, and her bunions are hurting her. And she, and then you'll we'll run across a p- passage where she says, I, and then that 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 darn guy Henry James wrote a review of your book. Uh, it's it's scandalous, one of the stupidest things I've read. And she also commented on the early critical works about Walt. Two books were written about Walt as a poet during, during the Civil War. So she, she not only read them, this illiterate, but she compared them quite, quite insightfully uh, as to which one was, was truer, better written, more powerful. She, so she was, you know, if she was an illiterate, and I'm an illiterate too. Um, and, and her letters are, uh, you know, quite, quite interesting in and of themselves. Now, Walt was writing to her very frankly. Uh, there's a famous letter he wrote early in the war. He, he began nursing because, as I said, he sort of turned his face away from the war to begin with. It was so, so disturbing to him. But then one day, he and his mother read it, uh, an article in a New York paper that a, a Lieutenant G.W. Whitmore had been wounded at Fredericksburg. Um, they knew from the, the number of the regiment that it had to be George, not, not anybody named Whitmore. So Walt rushed to the battlefield. Um, in those days, uh, this is still early in the war, if you were wounded on a big battlefield and you were not killed, it was more likely than not that you would lie upon the battlefield for hours and possibly days. And uh, so families, when they read that, um, somebody had been wounded, they would, they would do anything they could to get there to try to help. And so Walt rushed uh, within, within an hour of reading um, about his brother being wounded. He was on a train heading south. He went to Washington. He tried to find out where his brother was. Nobody quite knew. Then he, somebody directed him to Fredericksburg, uh, you know, to the right Anyway, he found George. George had been wounded, but he was he was okay. He had taken a, a, a piece of shrapnel through his cheek and uh, was already healing up by the time Walt, Walt, Walt found him a few days later. But while he was there at Fredericksburg, he um, he volunteered at a uh, at a field hospital in a, in a mansion there, the Lacey House, and. What he saw was very, very, uh, very grave. He did everything he could. He worked there hard uh, uh, for a few days, but um, 
at that point, he decided that he would go back to Washington where the major hospitals were and and see if he could make himself of use. Um, And he wrote um, his mother a letter uh, saying, Mother, the first thing I... I found this place called the Lacey House. They told me there was a field hospital there. The first thing I saw was a pile of severed limbs, hands, feet, arms. They were being dropped out of a window next to a catalpa tree. There was a surgery in the room, and they were just dropping these things out the window. Um, Now, you know, Walt wrote it more, more effectively than I've just paraphrased it, but when I first read that, I thought, He's writing this to his mother. How is he doing that? How is he possibly doing that? Um, I mean, letters home from the front are always fictionalized to some degree. You're, you're trying to reassure the folks. Even if you're dying, you're trying to make contact. I'm, you know, I'm going to a better place, mother. Don't worry about me. I love you. That kind of thing. Well, Walt didn't write in that mode. I mean, he wrote many, many loving things, but he wrote very, very frank things. And then I found, you know, George wrote just as frankly. He didn't dwell upon the wounds. I mean, he wasn't as medically curious as as Walt was, but he wrote very, very graphically about what he saw and what he experienced. And he also wrote many times to Mrs. Whitman about the joy, the kind of ecstasy he experienced in combat. Um, he wasn't uh, a psychopath or a sociopath, but he was, as I said, an extremely ardent soldier. And when he led his men well and they triumphed over the foe, he, he had powerful feelings, and he described them to his mother very, very directly, very graphically. So I thought that, you know, this Mrs. Whitman was kind of, um, I don't know, a large soul. Um, they... They felt that she could understand anything. And, and this enormous correspondence that's headed back to the slum mother in Brooklyn is because these sons who were living through very, very distressing experiences that were, that were also very thrilling, none of it was quite real to them until they ran it in front of Mrs. Whitman. If she could understand it, if she could live with it, if she could make sense out of it, then, then they could too. Um, and one other aspect of the correspondence that I thought was interesting is that, as I said, George wrote a lot of letters to Walt, directly to Walt, and um, often with reports on, on battles. And I found, you know, George would write a letter, let's say it was dated, you know, April 24th, uh, 1863. On April 27th, uh, Walt is publishing an article in the New York Times um, describing that very battle. Um, He used George's reportage very directly. Uh, He would change a few words, but um, uh, George was his, his principal source uh, for, for a lot of his, uh, his reportage. And his whole understanding of what it meant to be a soldier fighting and living in the field and uh, was because he visited George at the front, uh, because he, can, he, he, he spoke with his, his brother, uh, wrote to his brother. He asked his brother if he could read his uh, private journals. George was quite happy to hand them over. So George was a, a direct and important source for, uh, for Walt's um, 
war reportage. Um, I want to read a little uh, uh, little extract uh, from my book, just slightly changed when it came out in this in this magazine. Um, the one of the big mysteries uh, um, for me is that when, when I began working on this, was I realized that. As I said, I read Whitman carefully and really for the first time, and uh, and I I perceived that, um, and I'm not the first person to notice, is that the Civil War was the end of his great poetry. Uh, he wrote one great poem um, during the Civil War, at, at, just after the Civil War, when Lilac's Last in the Dooryard bloomed, his, his elegy on the death of Lincoln. But the poetry that he wrote out of the war uh, most of it published in Drum Taps, a small book he published during, during the war um, it's, it's, it's nothing like his great poetry it's, it's good, it's interesting, it's touching um, and it's full of uh, real looking scenes but it, it's, it's more like his poetry is more like um, a good little screenplay for a little movie um, it's 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 got the you know the shine of the sun on the on the you know the stirrups of the officer's horse. It's got the sound of the water. It's got the the feel of a bullet going past you. It, it's got all of that, but it, it's nothing like his great uh, mystical poetry. His 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 the poetry that he, that he published before the war. So anyway, this is a little bit about that. Walt came to believe that the details of the battles, the mere military minutia, as he called it, uh, would soon be lost to history, and deservedly so. What would be remembered instead would be the acts of compassionate intercession, the nursing, the comforting, and the condoling to which he and other volunteers had dedicated themselves. A poet's narcissism may explain his praise for what he himself was undertaking to do, Whitman, after all, is the poet of himself, ever given to idealizing um, his own character and life. But other concerns were also at play. Though loyal to Lincoln and to the Union cause, Walt was disgusted by the war. His letters to his mother recount again and again the horrors he was seeing, the gross waste of young life, the hideous, pointless agonies. He was finally overcome by what he saw. And in the spring of 1864, just as George was embarking on the final campaign of the war, Walt began to fail emotionally. He exhibited an assortment of odd symptoms and had to take temporary leave from the hospitals and go home to Brooklyn to be nursed by his mother. It's a testament to his devotion that six months later he returned to Washington and to the same grim, saddening work in the hospitals. Considering his uncanny insight into the hearts of men, the way that Walt got things exactly wrong about the Civil War is notable. He abhorred violence and thought that the 620,000 dead of the war, a figure equivalent to 6 million Americans today percentage-wise, he thought that, that that great pile of dead would consign war to the ashpen of history. But the world was actually on the threshold of an enduring boom in war, with a civil war marking but its first stage. 
a new and harsher kind of conflict fought with better rifles, ironclads, railroads, the telegraph, and other technological enhancers, and with brilliant innovators such as Sherman and Jackson making tactical breakthroughs that later generals copied, secured a central place in the activities of nations for war on a mass scale. Indeed, accounts of the military minutiae of the Civil War so far outnumber meditations on the meaningful suffering of the men as to produce an absurd disproportion. Of some 50,000 books published to date about the war, Whitman's book of battle pieces, Drum Taps, may be the only one to hold that the way that the soldiers suffered and died and were cared for trumps all else. Every other approach to the war has been richly explored, and it sometimes seems that every material detail figures in some study or other, from the incidence of venereal disease among the troops to their coffee-drinking habits to the frequency with which Confederate officers' letters to their wives mention concepts like duty and honor and gallantry. Overwhelmingly, however, the strictly military details constitute the literature. There may never be an end, in fact, to the fascination with martial virtue and the way that American men responded to this severe test at arms. The suffering is part of the fascination, certainly, but not in the way that Walt forecast. Rather than superseding the battlefield accounts, the wounding and dying provide a dark background against which the minutiae play out endlessly. Many soldiers are profoundly stirred by their experiences of war and some are fundamentally changed by those experiences. Walt's take on the war, that it was atavistic and horrible and in some ways beneath discussion, was no doubt more progressive than the tiresome dwelling on who fought where and how each battle was won or lost, but it was not, therefore, more truthful. If Walt had instead identified a readiness to engage in ruinous war as an inherent tendency of men in our time, then that would have been an original thesis. The war was tragic, <clears throat> according to our national mythology, because brother slaughtered brother. In reality, it was tragic because so many brothers took to the killing and did it so well and for so long. The enormous body count suggests something almost spree-like to the killing. Many of the wounded whom Walt met in the hospitals had fired rifles, if not in anger, then surely with intent to wound or kill. They were not just debris left by the whirlwind, they were the whirlwind. Now, if there's something like an ideal response to war service, then George Whitman probably had it. He never testified to enjoying the killing of men per se, but he found fulfillment in triumphing over the foe by using superior energy and skill and, in the process, capturing or killing people. Remembering the furious fighting at Burnside's Bridge, he wrote, Burnside, who was looking on, ordered Sturgis to send our brigade there, saying that he knew we would take it. As soon as we were ordered to forward, we started on a double quick and reached the bridge. We were then ordered to halt and commence firing, and the way we showered the lead across that creek was nobody's business. I had command of our company again, and as soon as the men got steadily settled down to their work, I took a rifle from one of the wounded men and went in loading and firing. Hoping to inspire his men, or maybe just wanting some action, George didn't merely guide them, but instead he picked up a weapon. He had done the same thing at the Battle of Chantilly two weeks before, taking a rifle from a fallen soldier and having, quote, a few shots on my own which seemed to encourage the men very much, end quote. Chantilly, usually reckoned a complete Union failure, had trappings of success in George's description of it. His sector of the battle was not a zone of confusion or of backing down. As he wrote, 
We soon drove the rebels, but they rallied and came on again, but we were ready for them this time, and they gave way again and fell back. We stayed there till about 9 o'clock, but they had had enough and did not make another attempt, and our regiment left the field marching company front, we being the last regiment engaged in the terrible fight of Saturday and the last to leave the field. Other signs of George's ready accommodation to soldiering are his good health, his many strong friendships, his battlefield promotions, and the simple sensual pleasure he took in eating, drinking, and sleeping well in camp. After four years of highly active campaigning, including five months in rebel prisons, he was so little disenchanted with the practice of war as to hope and make a, a permanent career in the post-war army. Walt had this evidence before him when he formed his very different opinion of fighting and war. His verdict seems hasty, to say the least. Even after the dreadful carnage at First Fredericksburg, the Union troops were mostly of good cheer, as Walt discovered during his visit to the battleground. And during his only other visit to an active combat zone in February 1864, he found the soldiers undaunted and eager. He had this evidence and the experiences of George before him, but he still insisted that war was anomalous, doomed to extinction. No doubt he hoped to reform mankind when he consigned war to the pre-modern darkness. Let us pretend it is so, he seems to say, and the world will be a better place. Ease with which some men adapted to soldiering and the way it fascinated them, even transformed them, were dreadful recognitions for him. These are not the glorious human truths that he had labored so long in the hospitals to uncover. To salvage something from the squalor, to restore America to its sane, noble course through history, these purposes color most of what he wrote about the war, especially when he turned his pen to poetry. And for this reason, his literature of the war is oddly conventional, even sententious and old-fashioned. With a single notable exception of Lilacs, his profound elegy on the death of Lincoln, there's nothing written during or after the war to compare to the longer poems he wrote before, to Song of Myself, Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, The Sleepers, or the shorter love lyrics known as the Calamus poems, to name just a few. His vocation as a form-breaking, culture-defining poet on the order of a Homer or a Milton was another casualty of the war. It may be that he had nothing more to say that required him to dig as deep and see as far as had his pre-war illuminations, or it may be that the awful reality of the war made the poetry that he was most comfortable writing, the poetry of a tender, earthly visionary, seem beside the point. The other great American poet of this period, Emily Dickinson, wrote prolifically during the war, but she was able to thrive and to feel so much because she had perfected her Amherst hermitage, her eccentric bastion from the gaudy, murderous age. Walt, like his soldier brother George, gave himself body and soul to that age. And like his brother, he gave himself likewise to his country's cause and its immemorial hour of torment, never naming what he did as sacrifice and refusing to reckon the cost. Indeed, after the war, he always claimed that these were the years when he had been most fully alive, these seasons of careful tending. Surely, from so harrowing and exhausting experience would come deep insights, and from them he would surely fashion poems for which he would ever after be remembered. He had been a brother to the wounded sons. He had borne them in his arms as they traveled over, and his claim to know the suffering soul of America better than any other man can hardly be denied. And yet his life as a poet, as a writer of great new poetry, was now decisively over. Thank you. If anybody has any questions, uh, I'd be happy to 
to say that I can't answer them. Yeah. He's he's wearing a you know that 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 collar is a, it's a, a work workman shirt and if you look he's got long johns on underneath it you know and that was very scandalous to show that undershirt um, but it's also a, a downturned open collar such as Byron wore Byron the great literary celebrity of the first half of the 19th century everybody wanted to be like Byron at least in his fame and his success so it's it's kind of a you know. Uh, multitasking collar. It's, he's a workman, but he's also a little like Byron. I'm glad you asked me that question. Cause let, let me show you just, I just have a few of these other images that are kind of curious. This is George. This is George uh, um, shortly after he enlisted. Um, you can't really tell from this picture, but George was another big guy. He was a, a large, um, um, slow-moving um, uh, fellow. He had very piercing, very light gray eyes. So did Walt. Um, and they had kind of a measuring cast. He, uh, he was much, despite my description of him as an ardent soldier who enjoyed combat and killing, he was very much loved by his men who uh, um, honored him in, in, in really notable ways. Um, so this is, this is Walt before the war. This is like 10 years before that other picture with the open collar. You can see he's trying to be an Emerson or a, uh, you know, a Longfellow. Uh, although he's only 28 there, he looks kind of worried and older to me. Um, this is when he was an editor of a newspaper in New Orleans. So this is only, this is about 1863. He's, he's now, he's about... You know, he's 43 or 44. And um, I think you're starting to see the labor, the, the effects of the labor of the work in the hospitals. Um, he's, um, you know, he's aging quickly. Whoops. Whoops. And this is just, just another year later. He's, he's about 45 here. Um, Just a few years after this, um, he had a he had a massive stroke. Um, he uh, he survived it pretty miraculously. I mean, he was he was uh, you know basically the treatment for a stroke in those days was they put a you know a wet towel on your forehead and told you to take a nap. Um, he had a terrible terrible stroke. He could no longer take care of himself. Uh, he was crippled, um, and uh, he went. This is after the war, and George had established himself as a as a house builder and an inspector of pipes, and he was doing quite well. So Walt went and lived in George's house for the next eleven years. George and his wife took good care of him. At the end of that period, Walt was pretty much back together. Um, he. Uh, you know, he was never, he had been 
quite an athletic guy, and he was never that again, but he could walk, he could get around, he could, he could carry on with young men. Um, it, it was very interesting to me. I kept coming upon photos of Walt with always with another boyfriend. At, you know, Walt is aging, and the boyfriends stay about 20. Um, I'll show you one uh, in a moment. This is uh, Peter Doyle, uh, Walt's big love during the uh, uh, Civil War. They, uh, Doyle was a streetcar conductor. Um, he had served. He had been a, uh, a Confederate soldier, wounded, uh, was invalided out, and went to work uh, in Washington uh, on a streetcar. And um, they, uh, they fell in love. This is George uh, at the end of the war. Um, as I say, he was a lieutenant colonel, breveted lieutenant colonel. Um, and this is, um, as best I was able to determine, this is probably the 51st New York um, uh, waiting before an engagement at Petersburg. There was a long siege at Petersburg at the end of the Civil War, and they were, they were the 51st was uh, at the Battle of the Crater, um, suffered many casualties there, and they, they were there all through the siege, um, through most of the siege. And uh, anyway, George is probably in there somewhere. Uh, so anybody else good? Yeah. In the, in the correspondence with his mother, or from her father, was there any, uh, any discussion about his sexuality? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> you have to read my book. I talk about that a lot because... Uh, um, you know, there was not a term. The, the word homosexual had, was first used in, in, in English, in, in America, in, in the early 1890s, uh, when uh, Kraft Ebbing's Psychopathia Sexualis was translated. So the concept didn't exist in a way. Uh, but mothers know and and I, and I think also George uh, was asked by uh, you know after Walt died uh, biographers interviewed George you know quite closely and they wanted to know what he'd been, had he been like and you know and and George said many kind of funny things tongue-in-cheek things about Walt for example he would say his skirts were clean uh, Walt never fooled around with loose women and, uh, and uh, you know, he'd just kind of leave it at that. And uh, but the the houses that they lived in in Brooklyn were these, you know, some of them were tenements. Some most of them were freestanding small houses. I mean, wood houses, wood frame houses. The walls were about that thick. I mean, this is a family of at some points a family of six adults and a mother, and a few little grandchildren running around. I mean. Everybody heard and knew everything. It's you know it's kind of unthinkable that, and and then um, I found that in the late 1850s up to about 1860, uh, Walt had another important love, a guy named Fred Vaughn, and uh, and Fred lived in the house with Mrs. Whitman and Walt and brothers and sisters for about a year and a half. So you know every night Walt was going upstairs with Fred, and they were you know showing up at the breakfast table in the morning. I, I, I just, I think that, you know, the idea that that woman, the woman who wrote those letters, those very sharp letters, she knew everything. You know? She was a mother who I don't think missed anything. 